Milkshake Podcast, episode 75, with me, Dan the Fitness Man. Today, we're bringing on Joel Turner, who easily drops one of the best podcasts we've ever had, and he's been on several podcasts, so I'm always hesitant to bring guys on like that, but I do not regret this one. In fact, this could possibly be one of the most informational podcasts we've ever dropped covering some pretty legitimate topics for the do-it-yourself elk hunter when it comes to not only shooting your weapon, specifically archery, but elk calling tactics from a guy whose elk hunting learning curve was a long one, 13 years until he finally killed an elk with a bow, and he goes over what he was doing wrong, and now what he's doing right. Pretty awesome. So stay tuned for this one, and thanks for downloading listening, taking time out of your day, and spending it with us, and I hope that it's worth your while, and I just wanted to say thank you. If you're looking to get a cooler for elk hunting in 2019, look no further than Siberian Coolers out of Bozeman, Montana. They have a discount code, ElkShape2019, that gets you a little bit of a discount, and their prices are already cheaper, and their cooler is already better than the big Y brand, and I think that is awesome for do-it-yourself guys, the blue-collar guys. So check it out. I've been really happy. I let my sister borrow it. She, her mind is blown, and I'm pretty sure she just bought one. So uh, Willie Schmidt from Pure Hunting introduced me to Siberian Coolers, and that's how I found out about them and check them out. So a lot of questions I get on what supplements I take, and so I don't take very many, but I do take the good ones. I take FNX. They make a greens formula. It's called Rebalance. They make krill oil, which is better than just regular fish oil you'd get at Costco. They make a branch chain amino acid formula that you can drink throughout the day or on those hard training days to prevent anything catabolic. You want to keep your hard-earned muscle. I refuel with their protein powder. It's a whey and it's an isolate and it doesn't have a bunch of fluff in it. And I also take a daily men's multivitamin. That's it. That's not a lot of supplements, but it's just general health stuff that I think everybody should look into. We got a discount code, 15% off using Elk Shape. As you're already aware, University of Elk Hunting is an online course that you can take with the most ridiculous amount of Elk Hunting knowledge, and now you can listen to it audio. So if you want to check that out, I think your subscription will last for a year, and I think having that on your phone would be really cool to listen to, like back at camp or on your way to your hunt. So many different chapters and modules, everything under the sun, elk hunting, and you can shorten your elk hunting learning curve, get 20% off, use a discount code ELKSHAPE. Thanks, Corey Jacobson. When it comes to actually killing elk and putting your meat in game bags, I recommend Caribou Game Bag. So use the discount code ELKSHAPE and you'll get 15% off that. And lastly, Off Grid Food Co. out of Washington State makes arguably the most delicious meals available for you to take in the backcountry. And the macronutrient ratio, the protein-carb-fat ratio, gets my seal of approval. Use discount code ELKSHAPE for 10% off. That covers our partners. We're going to get right into this podcast. Without further ado, here is Mr. Joel Turner from Shot IQ. Elk Shape Podcast with me, Dan, the fitness man, and Joel Tuner of Shot IQ slash law enforcement slash super dad. <laughs> How you doing tonight, man? I'm doing excellent, bro. Thank you. That's cool. So you live in Washington as well? Right. 
What's, where are you at exactly? I'm over in Eatonville, which is just west of Mount Rainier. It's oh, okay. You're smack dab in the middle of the most incredible gene pool of bull elk in the world, I think. These right around Eatonville, Cascade Roosevelt's that are here are amazing. They are, I mean, they kill 400 inch bulls every year around us here. Wow. And the, the mass on them is incredible. It's absolutely incredible. So it's pretty cool. Are these elk living on public land by chance? No, that's why they're thought. on. They're in private timber company stuff where you have to like buy access, and then you get put in for the draw, and it's pretty tough to get drawn. But my my hunting partner's dad got drawn this year for the muzzleloader tag, so it's going to be on like Donkey Kong, buddy. Well, since we're in Washington, and I've had a few Washingtonians, uh, did you draw anything yourself? I didn't. I, I'm going to be hunting uh, over the counter in Idaho, and I'm, I'm going to be guiding September 1st to the 6th in Oregon, in eastern Oregon. And then I'm going to buzz back here and hunt probably four or five days here, depending on what bulls we find around here this year. And then we're going to uh, buzz on over to Idaho. Oh, right on. So you're set up. Now, how do you manage? Because you have this company, Shot IQ. You also have what I said, a real job, like you are law enforcement, you do, you enforce the law, you're SWAT, you're a dad, you're, I mean, you're everything, man. How do you get time off? How do you do it? <laughs> well, uh, I've been a cop for 18 years now, so we get, I mean, I get like 15 hours a month uh, in my vacation bank, so I pretty much bank everything up. Everything goes toward, you know, elk season is my big, I take virtually the whole month of September off. So, and then everything else is uh, clinics around the country that I do for Shot IQ and also taking uh, my boy Bodie to tournaments. He's, he's such a shooting machine at 12 years old that I've got to get him more exposure. So we're, you know, I'm doing somewhat less clinics this year and trying to do more big tournaments to get him get him out there so how cool is that when did yes. you how old was he when he started he started at 10 months old okay so so he couldn't even stand up yet and he was drawing a bow back so i i had a bow in his crib since day one you know just a little toy bow and i was sh- shooting with him in a front pack or a backpack at two weeks old so that youngster has seen a lot of arrows go downrange. Uh, definitely. So when did you pick up a bow? When I was seven. Okay. Who introduced you? Nobody. My dad had an old bear cub recurve 41 pounds at 28 inches standing in the corner of our garage. His mom bought it for him. Really cool story. He was stationed on Sidkanak Island in the Coast Guard in 1969. And... My grandma sent him this bow to shoot lemmings. That's what they did up there. There was nothing else to do but shoot lemmings. Yikes. But he never, <laughs> he never picked it up. He brought it back with him. He put it in the corner, and it was never shot that I know of until I picked it up when I was seven years old. Wow. That's pretty cool. I mean, I remember everything about the bow and I remember white Dacron string, brown center serving, had a piece of gray electrical tape for the knock point, <laughs> uh, wood arrows that were uh, yellow, painted yellow, true turkey feathers on them, green knocks, 
I remember everything about that setup. And I couldn't even pull it back. But, I mean, at seven years old, I only had like a probably a 14-inch drawing. So <laughs> I got about three inches past brace and let her buck, man. Yeah, that's great. Yeah. So we we wanted to bring you on tonight because Art, I've talked to so much about how doping your weapon and doping year-round and, and perfect practice, not just practice, you're a subject matter expert. We're going to get into how that happened, that unfolded. Mm-hmm. But the main thing we discuss on here is the elk hunting learning curve because, quite honestly, I sucked at elk hunting. And I say that because I don't suck at it now. It doesn't mean I'm great. It's just I just don't suck. Like, I mean, if you want to see suck, come hunt with me in 2001. And I have a lot of days in the field in September because when I got the elk hunting bug at age 21, mm-hmm. I'd quit jobs to go elk hunting the entire season, which was 30 days. And I don't know if I've ever missed an elk season since I was 21. I'm 37. I've hunted every day of September probably for that many years. So I have a lot of experience. But, right. man, I sucked at – I couldn't get it done for about five years. Mm-hmm. So let's hear your elk hunting learning curve story. Let's start there. Uh, my dad bought me my first elk call uh, when I was 12 years old, 1988. And for some reason, I don't know why, complete happenstance, uh, divine power, whatever, I threw that thing in my mouth and I was able to make noise with it instantly. So I started into making elk sounds and, you know, whatever I could find for, you know, VHS tapes or whatever. And I remember I had, when I was 13 years old, I had an encounter with a bull elk that was bugling back to me, and it was the most incredible thing that I'd ever seen. I didn't necessarily call the bull in, but I actually got one to answer me. And I was not hunting at the time. Right. This is just from my house. And then I started bow hunting elk when I was 14 years old. And one of the problems when you start that young is you always want to have a hunting partner. And, you know, you, you go out with your buddies and you try to kill an elk. Well, that was, that's actually one of the worst things you could ever do is to have an, have a hunting partner in elk hunting. Uh, I truly believe that if you really want to kill bulls, you need to hunt by yourself and you need to develop tactics that work for the solo hunter. And it just eliminates so many uh, variables when you're by yourself. You don't have to worry about other people, what other people are doing, how aggressive are they being, all these things. So I'm 14 years old getting to hunt the most incredible piece of elk hunting property that's in this area, calling bulls in at 14. But by the time I'm 14, I'm so immersed in target panic, there's no way in hell I'm going to hit one of these things. I'm at this point in my archery career. My mom had bought me a uh, see it was a Martin Lynx Magnum. Oh yeah. And I had I started with sights on it, but I couldn't put the sight on the target without letting the string go with my fingers. You know, the the typical locked off target target panic situation. So uh then I watched a video by Ted Nugent, right? Spirit of the Wild. Hey, that guy doesn't shoot with sights, man. Maybe I'll try that. So I started shooting barebow and was, you know, still locked off target, but now I didn't have a sight to put on anything and it was a real nightmare. So, but I'm calling these bulls in. I'm starting to learn about calling these bulls in and, and able to make these sounds. And 
I started working in an archery shop when I was 16. Okay. And the guy that owned the archery shop, he was he killed some bulls and stuff, and he was a pretty good caller. So I learned some things from him, and uh, but still not killing any bulls. I think I shot at my first bull when I was 16 or 17. It was right after a rain. I'm walking through a clear cut. I look out in the clear cut, and it was a fairly new cut, but it had grass in it. And I see this dark chocolate-colored five-by-five rack sticking above the grass. This bull was bedded out there, and it just rained, so everything was super wet and quiet. So I slid out, and I'm getting closer and closer and closer, and I'm thinking about the future, right? I really I want to kill this bull elk so bad. I'm going to be a hero. I'm going to be able to tell all my buddies. And it was the typical thing that most people do, right? You're thinking in the future, and I'm not thinking about what I need to, and that is my shot process. So I get to within 30 yards of that bull. Now, at this point in my archery career, I was not locked off the target low. I was locked off the target high because I discovered gravity. So I thought I would use gravity. I would hold way over a target, and then I would just dump my bow and let the string go all at the same time. Okay. Nightmare, right? So I get to 30 yards, and I snap a twig with my foot, and this bull stands up perfectly broadside, beautiful. I mean, he's all – he's wet. I can remember it like it was yesterday. Oh, yeah. His antlers are glistening. It's in the evening. I come to full draw as he stands up, and I'm holding my point way over the top of his back i mean i might have hit that bull if he was standing at about 120 oh gosh he was 30 right and i know that i'm high i know i'm way high but i've got no way to control myself to bring it down on the target so i dump my bow and let that string go and watch that 2413 aluminum xx75 go right over his back That bull just stepped out of my dreams, right? <laughs> so, and then that happened again and again and again. I was getting better at hunting, but worse at shooting. That's to a the, problem, dude. Yeah, to the point that I'm getting lots of shots at elk, but I just cannot control myself at the moment of truth. It was ridiculous, right? So, Fast forward, uh, see, now 2003 comes along. Well, I became a cop in 2001, and I started to get control of my firearms shot while I was in the academy. Came out of the academy, top in the firearms class, was able to control myself with a pistol, but didn't know how I did it, and didn't know how to transfer that knowledge to the archery shot. So 2003 comes along. Now, this at this point, I mean, I got this this game down. I mean, as far as calling, all that stuff. I mean, I was doing the typical calling things that most people did. Uh, you know, cow calling lone bulls, trying to challenge herd bulls, this and that. And I was having success, but not the success that I have now. And we'll talk about that. But so 2003 comes along. Uh, I'm fire dangered out on the Oregon coast, and I finally find a bull on some state ground. I did a really cool maneuver on him. I got on the ocean side of him because I knew the wind would be going out to the ocean in the morning. I called him in in the morning. I shot that bull at 15 yards. I finally got one. That was my first bull elk. That was when I was 27 years old. So I went 13 years without killing a bull elk. (laughs) That is nonsense. 
right? Yeah, but well, it, I mean, guys are like, their ears are perking up because there's people listening. In your situation, they're going on year 14 and they want to change that, man. Right. And it's so easy to change, but you've got to ask the right questions and you've got to see the right things. So I killed that bull in 2003 and that was the first year that I hunted by myself. And I started to recognize a pattern of people that kill a lot of elk, right? Like I'm looking at Chuck Adams. I'm looking at all these guys that are hunting by themselves and killing these big bulls. So there's a pattern to success for just about anything. So then, uh, see, 2004, I went to Montana for the first time. Now I've got somewhat control of my shot, but uh, I was hunting the brakes and I missed a few bulls. Uh, just, they weren't there anymore. I was shooting a recurve on in 2004 and they just weren't there anymore when my arrow got there. Yes. 2005 comes along. I thought maybe I'd shoot a compound again. I was not in control of my shot with my compound and, uh, uh, I, uh, shooting a Scott caliper, punching the crap out of the trigger on the thing. Right. Yep. In 2005, I managed to kill two bulls by punching the crap out of the trigger, but only because I'd, I'd been hunting by myself. I killed one in Washington, one in Montana. And 2006 comes along, uh, missing bulls. 2007, missed the biggest bull of my life. Starting to call them in good, better. 2008 is when I started to get control of my shot a little bit. And uh, it, it's around this time that I started to kind of figure out the calling sequences and I didn't figure it out by listening to elk. And that's where people seem to be missing because they're trying to learn the language of elk by listening to the elk. And that may sound weird, but as a cop, so I was a cop in 2001. It took me Till about 2008, 2009 to finally figure out that drunk human beings are just like bull elk, right? Okay. So I'm going to these bar fights <laughs> and I'm seeing the same things that I'm seeing in the elk woods. I'm seeing two dudes that are fighting and, you know, here I am, the cop having to, you know, whatever, tase people, defensive tactics on folks, whatever I need to do to, to get the fight stopped. And when the smoke is cleared, what's the fight over, fellas? Oh, man, he's talking to a girl. That's what it always was. <laughs> it's never two dudes that say, hey, Bill, you want to kick the crap out of each other? Let's do this, right? That ain't how it works. So I started to see this dynamic in primal humans, right? And I consider drunk people fairly primal because they've lost inhibition. Great description. I love it. Right. So I'm looking at this dynamic and then I'm thinking, how does this work in the elk world? And it was about that. It was like the perfect storm started to come together because at that time I listened to a CD from Elk Nut, Paul Metal. Oh, yeah. And I listened to his CD. It's called Sounds by the Elk. And there's one snippet where he's he's describing all these different bugles. Right. And there's one bugle in there that he describes and he has a bunch of bulls doing it called and at that point he said this is a bull that's calling cows and i'm like okay that is the sound that i need because when these guys go into a bar they talk to the female they don't talk to the males they talk to the female that's what gets the fight started yep and that's ultimately what we're trying to do in the elk woods right 
So, but what I'm noticing in this this short snippet on the CD is that none of these bulls are chuckling. And that's when I started doing the research, right? That's when I start looking at all the elk footage I can find of bulls that are with cows and there's no other bull around. And there's tons and there's hours and hours of footage on YouTube that people have filmed. And when you notice these bulls are in amongst their cows, they are not chuckling. They're only chuckling if there's another bull around and if they're talking to that bull. So that's the dynamic that I started to figure out. Couldn't agree more. Just thinking from a historical perspective, one of the bulls I killed last year, I was fortunate to get right within his cows, and he came down and did his herd gathering call, mm-hmm. and he did not care one bit about me. He wanted his cows out of there, right. and he came in as close as you could get, pure Idaho brush, and uh, just herd gathering and they all all the ladies he had about 16 17 cows and calves they all got up and moved to him and it's if you look at it from a historical standpoint like you're speaking gospel dude (laughs) well it's just something that has become an undeniable truth now i mean there's guys like chris rowe out there they're way smarter than me on what these elk are saying but i'm just putting it in an absolutely applicable dynamic yes right so i now know that these bulls when they're talking to their cows they don't chuckle so now i'm the guy that goes into the bar and i don't challenge all the dudes i'm not going in there and doing a challenge bugle with chuckles i don't care about the men Right, I'm going in there and I'm talking inappropriately to that one female that's definitely with that dude. <laughs> I'm not talking to him at all. I mean, you think about that dynamic on how it works in humans, right? You walk into the bar and you start talking to this female and dude's going to start talking to you. Hey, man. Hey, man. Right? And he's trying to get you out of there. Well, that's the bull's going to challenge bugle back to you. So you slip in on these cows, get as close as you can to these cows. And just one cow. You don't have to slip in on the whole herd. Just get within one of those outer cows. Try to get within you know, try to get within 50, maybe. I mean, I've done it as far as 150 from the cows, but that takes a little longer. But if you can get within 100 yards of the cows – you get your feet set. You get your release on. How whatever your system is that you shoot, you get set, and you speak only to the cows. So you do one bull calling cows bugle, and now he has no option but to remove you. There's no option because those cows might be interested, and the cows choose the bull. Fact. Right. So it's fact. Yeah, so you go in there and you do this one – just do it one time and he's going to scream back at you and you just get set and get ready because the cool thing about human beings and elk is when you do this technique, when you find yourself in a bar fight, there's no hang-up spot. If you are cow calling bulls in or calf calling bulls in, we'll talk about that in just a second, but if you're cow or calf calling to these bulls, they're going to hang up as soon as they can see the calling location, yeah. no matter what. That's what they do, right? Yeah. But when you do the bull calling cows technique, they do not hang up. I mean I've had people in a parking lot, guy and a gal one side of the parking lot, dude on the other side of the parking lot. This one guy talks to the other female. This guy 
with the female starts across the parking lot. Now I'm standing there full uniform, right? Flashlight on (laughs) and they'll walk right by me. They're blinded by this rage, right? So that's how you elicit rage in, in human beings and in elk is you talk to their female. So, I mean, I've had numerous guys walk right past me in full uniform when I'm yelling at them and they keep going all the way. And even if that other person runs away, they go all the way to the spot they were standing and they display, right? It's just a display. Like a lot of times when you do the bull calling cows technique, the bull will come in and he'll rake antler, his antlers on a tree just to display. I've had humans kick trash cans, do all kinds of stuff. It's the same thing. It's just a display of dominance. Quite possibly the greatest analogy I've ever had on this podcast. Joel, congratulations. <laughs> Love it to death. So for those that are – let's say we've got some novice guys who are like, okay, cool. Well, what the hell does that sound like? I don't have a bugle too, but would you – you got, I got one? I got it right here, buddy. Okay. Sam, let me let me get my calls out. But you know, when you're talking about the bull calling cows bugle, what you you don't need to be a world champion elk caller. I mean, I'm a two time world champion elk caller. You don't need to sound that good. You just have to have the right structure, right? Because you could go into any bar around the world, not even speak the language. You go into a bar and you start talking to a female. That's definitely with the dude. The dude's going to pick up on your vibe, right? 100%. You don't have to sound that good. You just have to talk to her and not to him. So that sound would be something like this. I don't know if this will blow the speakers out or what. I'll, uh, I'll take the computer away from you for just a second. Hang on. That's it. It's short. It's raspy. As soon as you go into the high note, you rasp it out with a lip ball or with your voice. It's not the quality of it. It's just the structure. Yep. Yep. So when you, you know, I've got, if, if you look on the Shot IQ uh, YouTube channel, you'll see I've got numerous sequences where I call bulls. I've called in 42 herd bulls to that one sound in the last five years. That's it right there. I, I love what you're saying. It's it's literally the truth. I was thinking the lip ball rasp was the key. I'm glad you said that because it doesn't matter. I mean, honestly, all elk sound quite different. There's no protocol. It's the structure. That's the great great adjective for the right. It's just it's the vibe that you're putting out. It's the motion behind the call, and and you are interfering with his plans. And his plans is to breed. And right. even, even if he's already established his dominance, you're too close for comfort, and it's game on. Yeah, I mean, it, you know, if you went, like, if you, if I told you, okay, Dan, I need, I'm going to give you, we're standing at the front door of the bar, and I said, Dan, I'm going to give you 30 seconds. You have to get in a fight. <laughs> you have to get somebody to punch you in the face in 30 seconds. How would you go about doing that? Exactly. Well. I would hope that you'd go in and talk to the female, but what a lot of people are doing in the elk woods is they're sending out chuckles with their bugle. If you send out chuckles with your bugle, you're talking to the bulls, not the cows. So that would be like you, I go, Dan, you got 30 seconds to get punched in the face and you stand there at the front door in the bar and get all puffed up and go, who wants some? Exactly. Right? 
you might get one guy that comes out, right? I mean, people are successful in challenging these bulls, but your odds are significantly decreased if you talk to the males. If you talk to the females, man, it's 100%. I mean, I know that's a big claim, but it doesn't ever seem to not work. If it doesn't work, it means you're not close enough. It's just, uh, man, it's amazing stuff. So that's what I picked up from my my job as a law enforcement officer was, okay, this is the dynamic of primal mammals. It's not just humans and elk. I mean, it would work on damn near anything if you could figure out the right sound. And in the elk woods, we've figured out the right sound. It's just a short, raspy bugle with no chuckles. Well, let's go down the language uh, rabbit hole a little further. You were talking about some calf calls, and let's let's get into a snare where that might come into play. And then I do want to go back to solo elk hunting because it's so funny you say that. Uh, my listeners will vouch for me. That's what I preach for so yep. many reasons, and I'd love to hear someone else preach on that. So, yeah, let's go to the calf call. Okay, so calf calling. We're talking about instinctive elk calling, right? How do we elicit instincts? Well, what sound out there will draw in both sexes of any species and that is the sound of one of their own species infants crying that's the instinct that you're listening so in cow elk you're listening the maternal instinct in bull elk there's a slight paternal instinct but the problem is is that or not the problem the good thing is that bull elk are pedophiles they don't care how old that calf is if it's going to stand there to get bred, they will breed it. Instead of <clears> – and <throat> think about this as far as cow calling. I would say that normal – just your normal mew in cow calling is the single most worst sound you could ever make in the elk woods. And here's why. When is the last time a bunch of human females got together – and spoke nicely about another female that wants to procreate with their men. Yeah. No. Doesn't happen, no. right? So same thing in an elk herd. The cows choose the bull. So they are protective of their bull. They want his genes. That's why he's there, right? They have chosen to be with him because of antler size, amount of bugling, whatever. There's all kinds of biology that go into that. But they've chosen him. You get toward the edge of a herd and you cow call thinking you're going to call a herd bull out of his herd of cows, those cows will gather up their bull and leave. It's usually the cows taking the bull away instead of the bull taking the cows away. The cows are the ones that lead the herd. For you to get in tight on a herd and cow call, if you've ever watched the dynamic happen, the ears come up on every cow there. They get all suspicious, they start getting all jittery, and then they leave. So, you know, all these these tactics that have been used for years are starting to become less and less effective simply by because of that dynamic. You know, when people elk call, the first thing they learn how to do is cow call. Well, I would suggest that you keep your cow calling in the calf spectrum because when you're a calf, if you get toward the edge of a herd and you're a calf – you're calling in both sexes of the species. So I killed a bull a couple years ago in Wyoming, slid in on – I knew there was a bull there. I didn't know that he had cows. So I slid in there, 
couple of calf mews, some lost calf mews, cow comes right in, bulls right on her heels, and I shoot the bullet like 20 yards with my recurve. Yep. So, you know, that's, that is a very viable technique. And it wouldn't matter if you find a bull with no cows, he's going to come into a calf call even more readily than a cow call. So, I mean, if you're dealing with satellite bulls, keep it on the calf spectrum because then you're not dealing with that suspicion. I, I couldn't agree more. Okay, man, we are on the same page. Let's continue on the same page. Solo elk hunting, I've already said just about everything I could think of about it, but that is definitely – I'm a solo elk hunter. Mm-hmm. I've been that way for over a decade, and I have a lot of reasons why, but let's, let's hear yours. Well, I never have to worry about – now, I've got a – I have a hunting partner, but we don't necessarily hunt together. The guy's an absolute killing machine. Um, we don't necessarily hunt together. He is – he's solo. I'm solo. We basically camp together, right? Yep. So And we pack each other's bulls out. That's we, hunting partners to me. Yeah. So, um, you know, I don't have to worry about other people, where I need to be. I can – you know, I'm out at 3 o'clock in the morning locating these bulls. And it's just me, and I'm I'm sliding in on these bulls. I know where I need to be. I know how close I need to get. I've I've limited my noise. I've limited my scent. Uh, I've limited my movement. You know, you don't have two people, and a lot of times people are not aggressive enough in this in this sport of elk hunting. So when I need to run, I don't have to tell anybody. I I just run where I need where I need to get to, and. Uh, so if I'm the one doing the shooting, I'm the one that's – it's just me out there hunting. And with this bull calling cows technique, there's no hang-up spot. So you don't have to call and move or any of these things. Just sit tight. He's going to now hunt you. All 42 of these herd bulls have hunted me until they got to me, right? So yep. Yep. it's uh, it's just an amazing way to do business. and. You know, I'm not having to tell somebody when to draw their bow or any of those things. Now, I also guide, so I'm doing those things. But when I'm doing the shooting, I don't have anybody uh, doing anything for me. So um, it's it's very interesting how how it all works. I didn't start killing bulls until I started hunting by myself. That's and a, a lot of, the same a lot situation of, for me. I mean, literally was I try? I just was influenced by what I had for resources. And everything I could get my hands on had guys with like two to three collars and they blew on some big old – like they were using diaphragm reeds or you know, just some Primos calls, you know. And what I saw I didn't know was like private ranch hunting and I thought it would work on public land and I hunted with people. And I will say like the number one reason I kill elk beyond experience in fitness would be just – decision making the speed of the decisions i make are undeniable yep you know what i mean absolutely and i don't have to get feedback from the tribe we don't have to sit around and ask everyone's take on what we should do right right and you know i mean that's that's part of experience though i mean and people seem to be somewhat afraid of breaking an elk down and you know, there's lots of stuff out there to learn how to do it. I mean, it's no different than breaking down a deer. It's just bigger, you know. So knowing what you can pack and how far you can pack and how deep you need to go and all these things are are kind of experience-based. But, you know, breaking an elk down, if I'm, if I'm by myself 
you know, from when that thing hits the ground and I'm on it, 50 minutes, five zero, 50 minutes, and it's in bags ready to pack. There's, yep. you know, and I'm sure you're exactly the same way. I mean, it's super easy to break these things down once you learn the bone structure and, you know, getting a good knife, learning how to really sharpen a knife or, you know, if you're using your Havilons or whatever, it's, yeah. And also, you know, if you're going to hunt by yourself, make sure that you're packing a tourniquet with you. Definitely. I mean, there's a lot of people out there that seem to be cutting themselves and stepping on broadheads and all those things. And these are things that just happen, you know, so just be careful with it. And, uh, but also know how to fix it if you do stick yourself in the wrong place. (laughs) Yeah, you definitely have to know, know yourself. And, um, I think you should weigh the risks and benefits and, and know where you're at. And you can, you can work your way up into some solo elk hunting and go a little further each time as you feel more comfortable and you get your gear system lined out and, and all that stuff, but packing the elk out by myself, um, which is probably what I've done more than with people. It's, it's a grind, but it, it can be done. And it's just, you have to pace yourself, which is why I train. And I, I literally work out as much as I can throughout the year, just so I'm used to these workouts that are daunting right. where maybe even a, a little bit of a conversation will take place inside my brain where, uh, my, Oh no, you can just shave around or you can, I'll just cut these reps down and you know it I'm case in point every week there's a workout where I'm just like man I I really only want to do a couple rounds of this or I want to this is good enough and that anytime I hear myself talking about good enough I know it's probably a lie and fatigue makes cowards of us all (laughs) so if there's a way to train physically to make yourself get reps at shutting that voice down I'm all about it and that's what I've found with uh the functional training that I do but what what do you do to stay in shape? Because you are a first responder, you are, you are an elk animal, and you do hunt solo. Dude's got to be in shape. I got to imagine. What what do you do either year round or before the season to to make sure that you are ready physically? Well, year round, I have you know, being a SWAT guy, I've got a you know, we have physical fitness tests all the time on SWAT, and and we do somewhat of a CrossFit type uh, test these days. So, you know, that, that keeps me in shape. I do a lot of, uh, hill sprints and, you know, just to get that cardio, keep it up there. And I've, I just bought, um, a sandbag. So I've been tossing that bad way around. I do a lot of, a lot of my workouts involve my bow. So, you know, I'll have a quiver of arrows, a quiver of six arrows, and I will sprint a hundred yards for every shot. So, with my bow, I'll sprint a hundred yards. Uh, so I'll run, run 50, run 50 back and then shoot an arrow. And, you know, I'll do that several times. Uh, then I'll go jog and I'll, I have a pretty good hill by my house and I'll, I'll try to sprint up that bad boy with a pack on my back. And it's just kind of functional stuff. I'm probably not as strong as I need to be in the upper body. I mean, I do lots of push ups, lots of pull ups, all those things. So, uh, I'm, I'm no animal like you, my man, <laughs> but I, I just, I know what it takes to, to, uh, keep my body moving. I think inactivity is, is a killer. So I just try to keep moving constantly and, and I don't necessarily have a set program, but I do stuff every day that, that works on my system. So, yeah, I do what I would say 90% of my workouts are leg centered around legs. Like I generally 
like I couldn't tell you the last time I bench pressed. It's in my training journal somewhere, but yeah. I, I really don't feel there's a lot of need for upper body besides aesthetics. I feel like I can get my upper body when I deadlift. <laughs> I know that may sound funny to some people, but truly you can recruit a lot of upper body in a deadlift or even a squat. But I wanted to ask you, and when I, I started training to hunt with Kenton Claremont in 2010, and mm-hmm. I remember when we set up the very first train to hunt course, I remember telling him, hey, and this was early, you know, probably still early in my archery career. I'd only had a bow in hand, not even, not even 10 years at that time. And I, I remember telling him, I'm like, hey, I think we're kind of promoting uh, target panic a little bit with having people shoot <laughs> okay. under duress. They're going to be, have a high heart rate. They're going to be under fatigue. They're going to see their pen and they're going to punch that. They're going to snap that thing, index finger. And I remember him like, saying well it's pretty realistic and and he added some good points but what we should talk about not creating some shitty habits and people have great intentions and they want to shoot in their backyard do some burpees and shoot run to their target and back but like maybe we talk about what not to do and get into your system a little bit okay so when i watch train to hunt or any of these systems that people are working out and shooting it seems to be it seems to me that they're not using it properly because I'm all about not shooting arrows I'm about using shooting for concentration practice that's why I run that's why I sprint 100 yards between arrows so that when I'm huffing and puffing can the skill is not in shooting the arrow the skill is bringing my mind where it needs to be to control that shot no matter what so when people go, they train for train to hunt or for hunting or whatever, they are simply shooting and they're not – if you just – if you go out there and you practice shooting, meaning you go out there, draw back, put your pin on the target and you punch the trigger and you do that and you're like, well, I'm, I'm pretty good. I'm ready to go. Well, you have actually practiced your own failure with every <laughs> one of those shots so that – and you, you're just becoming more and more efficient at shooting. And the, the core problem in shooting is that your mind will not allow you to cause your body impact as a surprise. That's not my opinion. That's just the way it works, right? Yep. Your mind will not allow you to cause your body impact as a surprise. If it can time the explosion of the bow going off, it will. And it times that release motor program, the sending of that motor program, all the other pre-ignition movements get sent with it. And every time you punch that trigger, grab your bow a little bit, blink your eyes, peek off the peep sight. Whatever you're going to do as a pre-ignition movement, you're practicing that. So you're getting more and more efficient at your own failure. So when it comes to a moment of truth, be it a train to hunt or a screaming bull elk in front of you, you get adrenaline in your system and you're going to become ultra-efficient. And when you become ultra-efficient, your heart rate is up there, and you haven't practiced bringing it back down so that you can think, so that you can think about all these things in your shot process. And we try to break it down to only a few. But people are using competition in the wrong way. Go to train to hunt and use it as a concentration test. Who cares if you lose if you shoot it in the 10 ring and you did all those things, you ran up that mountain, you did all those, you know, bag over the shoulder and all that stuff, and then you were able to concentrate. That is the true skill. 
right? Yep. You may not you may not win the gold medal, but you're going to kill a monster bull elk because of it. You know, so you got to kind of figure out what you want. You know, there's there's a lot of these shots that are, you know, you got to shoot the arrow within 5 seconds or whatever. That should be an abnormal shot for somebody. If you're shooting in what I what's called a closed loop control system, meaning that you are moving your trigger slow enough you could stop it anywhere within it, like you shoot, right? Yeah. I've you shoot lots of arrows. You are shooting in a closed loop control system. You can stop your shot activation movement anywhere within it. That means you're in what's called a closed loop control system. And I'm also vulnerable to going back to crappy habits because oh, everybody is. But I literally didn't. I couldn't fix this situation until I did two things. Mm-hmm. I spent about four hundred dollars on releases. Yep. And I spent money on an archery coach. Okay. And I have a story to kind of back it up. I literally put my Scott, you know, hook yep. release away, which is what I hunt with currently. Because I can yep. shoot it, surprise. And I uh, went bear hunting, shot a bear with a thumb barrel. I used the thumb barrel like a true, like almost like a hinge, I would say. Yep. Yep. And I shot this bear at 55 yards, and I had an opportunity to make a follow-up shot when the bear ran by me. And I pulled back, and I didn't have enough time to, use your word, concentrate. Right. And so the arrow never left. And mm-hmm. I was like, holy shit, I couldn't even make my I couldn't even make my bow go. All I had to do was punch the thumb, but I didn't know how to do it. I didn't train myself. Right. And that's when I knew I'd finally kind of broke some bad habits. Right. Um, I don't currently hunt with a thumb barrel, but I was just that my point is that's what solidified me. I was like, okay, because it is the only way I can put groups together. I cannot group punching a trigger. Uh, not, not at all. Right. Past, past so, 40 yards, not at all. You, so you, what happened, Dan, is you had a turning point, right? Yeah. There's a turning point at which – you started to make decisions in your shot because you realized that punching a trigger was not getting you the results that you wanted. Now, because you're a very determined person, you you decided to do all these things, to spend the to spend the money on a coach, to spend the money on the releases. But one of the things that happened, I imagine, is that you probably the release, changing the release probably got you to make the decision. Right, and you you actually because there's a there's a progression of decisions, and they go right along with release aids. So people start out with an index finger trigger. Once they start punching that, they somebody tells them to go to a thumb button, so they go to a thumb button. They start punching that. They go to a hinge. When they go to a hinge, that's a stopping point and a turning point for some people. But those that start punching the hinge then go to a tension activator release. Well, if you look at it in these terms, as far as decisions go. A tension activated release like a Stan Element, a Carter Evolution, a Silverback, any of these things that are tension activated, you don't have to make the decisions. It makes it for you. You push the safety in, you draw it back, you aim, you take the safety off, and if you don't pull, it's not going off. So it makes the decision for you. Now, you, being a determined person, started to make decisions in the second, on the second stage of that progression. So that's where you hit your turning point. And a lot of pros are in that space, right? They they shoot a controlled shot, but they can't go to a different release aid because that release that they're shooting is making the decisions for them. Because on a hinge, on a hinge release, the movement, not, there's no pros I know of that shoot a hinge with back tension. 
they all shoot it with a hand roll. So that movement, when they roll their hand, it's very easy to evaluate that movement. It's very easy to control it. So that kind of gives them that little bit of, okay, I'm just going to stay in this movement. It's like shooting a double action revolver. You just got to get the trigger moving and then keep it moving the same speed. Mm, You don't know when it's going to go off, right? So you know, I've watched you shoot a lot of arrows. I'm like, yeah, that's it. He's got it, right? Because you're making decisions. You you make a decision. Now, I mean, in the realm of decisions, I know we're getting close to our time here, but in the realm of decisions, I sucked and I was locked off target, complete target panic, all those things because I never made decisions. I never made what I call the original decision. I'm going to shoot this shot with control or not at all. And if you think about your turning point, you made a similar decision at some point in your shooting career. You're like, all right, enough of this crap. I'm doing it this way or I'm not doing it. And that requires determination, right? Absolutely. And for me, it was this one shot. And if you've heard any of my podcasts, I talk about this hog in 2008 where I finally got so pissed off of being locked off the target that I let it down on that critter i let it down on this hog at 20 yards and i finally as i'm standing there in the brush i said i'm going to shoot this shot perfectly or i'm not shooting it at all oh that's awesome that made me intensely present in the shot process and got me out of the future right that future like oh my god that's a six by six i'm gonna be a hero that has nothing to do with your shot process, right? Absolutely not. So there I am standing in the brush, and I said to myself, I'm going to shoot this shot perfectly or not at all. I raised my bow up. I started to draw it back, and for the first time ever, I made another decision while I was drawing my bow back. In the draw cycle, I said, I'm going to do this right. And that reinforced the original decision of I'm going to shoot this shot perfectly or not at all. Now, as I'm drawing the bow back, I said, I'm going to do this right. And I said it with determination, and it had a profound effect on me. Hmm. It kept me in the present of the shot process and out of the future where autopilot lives. Autopilot is a trigger-spanking bastard. (laughs) Oh, there's our soundbite for our teaser right there. Oh, man, that's beautiful. So, and then you can imagine this. So there I am. Now I'm at full draw on this hog and I've got the perfect aim. And because I was so present in the shot process, because I'd made those decisions, I made another decision. And this is the ultimate decision. If, if people take nothing else away from my instruction, your instruction, whatever, you got to remember the critical second. The critical second is the one second in time after you believe the aim is complete. That is when most people punch the trigger, Hmm. right? Yep. On their stick bow. That's when most people let the string go. That makes complete intuitive sense to your mind. It's on, shoot it, right? And that's how you started in archery. Put the pin on it, press the trigger. Okay, cool. Put the pin on, press the trigger. And that just got faster and faster and faster. And all these people that are out there missing bulls at very close ranges that they would never miss if it was in their backyard, it's because they're punching the trigger within the critical second. 
So you've got to get yourself past that one second in time. How do you do that? You make a decision. Dan, have you ever jumped out of an airplane? Uh, yeah. Okay. Did you jump by yourself? Uh, no. Okay. Have you ever jumped off a cliff into water? Yes. How did you get yourself to jump? I had told myself to do it. Exactly. You made a decision. You're standing there at the edge of the cliff. You need to do a movement that's going to cause your body potential impact. (laughs) You'll never just find yourself automatically jumping off the cliff. You have to bring yourself into the present to do that, and the decision always has words attached to it, right? So let's do this. Takes about one second to say. I like to use the words, here I go. So instead of firing the shot in that one second after you believe the aim is complete, make a decision. Say the words, let's do this, here I go, whatever it is for you, right? So I'm at full draw on this hog. All I really need to do is let the arrow go. I'm looking at the right, the proper aim. But I, then I said, here I go. And it reminded me of all those things that I needed to do in the second half of my shot which was to talk myself through my shot activation movement. I was shooting a longbow with a clicker at the time. Mm-hmm. So the, the sequence of decisions was, I'm going to shoot this shot perfectly or not at all. I raised my bow up. As I'm drawing my bow back, I said, I'm going to do this right. I got the aim that I needed. I said, here I go. And then I talked myself through it. Keep pulling, keep pulling, keep pulling, keep pulling, click, boom, I shot that arrow and smoked that hog. So that critical second is coming like a freight train, ladies and gentlemen. It is the reason, you know, very young hunters shooting at deer with a with a scoped rifle, as soon as the crosshairs get on hair, they punch the crap out of that trigger. Yeah, I think this stuff is like pure i think this entire podcast is gold i've done this is the 75th podcast Uh this is pure gold and i think people will know that because you're flipping the game on like you're really breaking it down to primal stuff like this is how you should have learned and if you didn't you need to pause you need to reevaluate you need to be honest you need to have some transparency with yourself and it's it's not fun but you gotta just check your ego for some growth Absolutely. I just got sick of sucking so bad and not killing these monster bulls until I finally figured out those decisions. But in that, on that shot in 2008, the problem was is that I reveled in the fact that I did it, that I controlled the shot, and I didn't analyze how I did it. So 2009 comes along. I killed two bulls with my, with my compound shooting uh, thumb button bare bow so i shoot my compound with no sights and of course you do (laughs) so i so i killed i killed two bulls one in new mexico one in arizona punched the crap out of the trigger on both of those bulls 2010 comes along and i'm still in this wonderland gee i wonder if the shot's gonna go well right you can't be in wonderland and be a killer right so 2010 comes along. I'm in New Mexico with my longbow. This bull comes down in the waterhole, turns broadside, looks the other way. And I was with my buddy on this one, and, and I said, give me numbers. So he 
hits the rangefinder 41 yards with my longbow. I know exactly where I need to hold my point at 41 yards. I know I need to hold my point 18 inches over his back. So I remember I was on my knees behind that screen of, of brush, and I said, I'm going to shoot this shot perfectly or not at all. I raised my bow up as I drew my bow back. I said, I'm going to do this right. I put that point 18 inches over his back, and I said, here I go. Keep pulling, keep pulling, keep pulling, click, boom. I shot that arrow, and it was one of the most beautiful things you've ever seen. I X that bullet 41 yards. The arrow goes all the way through the bull. He runs out of the water hole, red water going all over the place, falls over 100 yards away. Oh, yeah. That's just that's just. I, doesn't get better than that. It just doesn't. I reveled in the fact that I did it, but I didn't realize how I did it. So I went several more years of killing numerous bulls, getting through job number one in my shot, which is to draw back and aim, get it done, watch it to keep it. But I wasn't getting through job number two, which is the true control, right? It's controlling that shot activation movement. So it wasn't until 2014 that I shot a blacktail buck down below my house and I shot him right in the heart, and I've been after this buck forever, and I did not control my shot. And I sat there in that tree stand until – I mean it was raining. It was dark. I sat there until I figured it out. And I had to go back in my Rolodex of shots and successes and failures. And finally I remembered that one shot in 2008 on that hog and that one shot in 2010 on that bull. I was so cognitive in those shots – because of the decisions I made. So now from 2014 to now, I have not and I will not ever shoot an uncontrolled shot on a game animal. Why would I? I know the exact blueprint of how to do it. And that's what I teach at Shot IQ. How do you get this blueprint and what does it consist of in the decisions? How do you actually concentrate all those things, bro? And it is just I'm not in Wonderland anymore. I know I don't wonder how the shot's going to go on this next bull. I know exactly how I'm going to do it, and that is very powerful. I know that's so cool, and it breaks my heart to hear that there's guys out there right now that work so hard. Maybe even their ten day hunt, they they get one shot opportunity, and that's what we're all working for, right? And they they just fall apart in the yep. most critical three five seconds. Yep. towards the end and it's a damn shame but you almost need to go through it to make it to prioritize it to where you're not reinforcing like you said you're just practicing failure out in your backyard or at the range right i mean it's you've got to get pissed you know and if that if that failure is what gets you pissed and off enough to change how you do business then so be it yeah right but you know, those that learn from the mistakes of others are vastly more effective than those that learn from trial and error alone. No doubt. So, you know, we have cracked the code to shot control, and there's no reason to struggle anymore. So it's, uh, you know, now you know how to call these bulls in, you know, how to shoot them, you know, how to break them down, all these things, man. You become a very effective elk hunter and hunter in general it's really cool stuff it's powerful stuff man so hey how did your uh we're gonna change gears how did your turkey hunt go you were over in my neck of the woods how'd that work uh, out it was phenomenal I'm, uh my wife killed two gobblers the first evening we were there and uh bodie killed a big old gobbler and then we went back came back the next week and bodie shot an even bigger gobbler so he was tagged out 
And uh, I killed a good gobbler with my longbow, and yeah, it was good, man. We did well. That place is loaded. It is, man. (laughs) You guys didn't even put a dent in that place. It's ridiculous. I know. It was really cool. That's awesome, dude. Well, I'll put in the show notes where people can like basically find your YouTube, find your website, learn more about you because basically you teach two things that I do at Elk Shape Camp that I don't teach personally. I believe in stay in your lane. And uh-huh. I don't teach archery, coaching, tuning, nothing. I'm not an expert. I'm not I'm not there yet. I don't teach elk calling. I don't compete at elk calling. I can do fine, but I just don't teach it. You right. teach two of those things. That's pretty cool, man. We we should have to maybe connect up on an elk shape camp. I know yeah. we're, we're going to probably do one or two over on your side of the state in 2020. Oh. So I'll, yeah. we'll, we'll be in touch all, for sure. I'm all over that, bro. So I think um, after listening today, I think folks have some – some reflection to do on where yeah. they're at with their execution as well as what sounds they've been making or what they thought they were maybe going to do when they got in close on elk. I think we flipped we flipped the script a little bit and you got people yeah. thinking outside the box and I can't thank you enough for your time. You bet, man. Thanks for having me. Well, we will uh, we will do this again and that is a fact. If you'll have me, I'll get you on here again and we'll check back in on the process and go from there, man. Absolutely, pal. All right. Well, thanks for your time again. Yep. All right, have a good night. All right, bud, take care. Welcome to the two-minute drill sponsored by Elk 101. I'm going to sit down and chat with the elk hunting wizard himself, Corey Jacobson, two minutes on the clock. Hurry up offense style. Corey's going to drop knowledge bombs, and you are going to get better at elk hunting. So without further ado, here's Corey, and here is our topic of the day. Okay, Corey, last week you talked about best practices for an archery setup. I kind of want to get to the controversial question. I noticed that you used a G5 uh, striker. What is your thoughts on using expandables on elk? Yeah, you, it's controversial, all right. <laughs> you know, I think uh, part of the controversy comes because expandables work great for whitetail, and they work good for elk in most situations, but I think elk with them being bigger animals, tougher animals, bigger bones, there's just more of a margin of, or more of an opportunity to error when you use a mechanical head. And I do use a cut on contact, a solid head, just for those instances where maybe I make a mistake and I hit, you know, a shoulder blade or I have to plow through a rib or something where an expandable might not perform quite as well. And expandables, you know, they're going to cut a bigger hole when they work. They work great. I think there's just too many factors there for elk to to take that chance. And there's some states in the West that, that expandables aren't legal to use on big game for that reason. And I've heard, you know, horror stories about somebody shooting an elk at four yards with an expandable and the head failed you know it opened on impact and didn't actually penetrate through the rib or hitting a shoulder blade and same thing uh there's just there's too many instances in elk and and elk hunting there's a lot of variables stacked against us and i think i just want to minimize any chances of of making a mistake and uh, try to set myself up so I have a little bit of an advantage if I do make a mistake. And so I definitely uh, recommend and personally use just a cut on contact, solid head, broad head, and not an expandable. Hey, Elk Hunters, Corey Jacobson here from Elk101.com. And if you're like me, you're probably thinking about elk hunting every day of the year and working continually to maximize your chances for success this fall. 
Well, Dan and I have created a special opportunity for you that I feel will absolutely take you to the next level in elk hunting, regardless of your previous experience. Three years ago, I created the University of Elk Hunting online course with one goal in mind, to make you a more successful elk hunter. The UEH online course contains 45 chapters of detailed elk hunting information organized into 17 modules and covering every imaginable elk hunting topic, from planning and scouting to calling tactics and tracking and every topic in between. The University of Elk Hunting online course is the most comprehensive and complete resource available to elk hunters. And for listeners of the Elk Shape podcast, Dan and I have teamed up to offer you a 20% discount when you sign up. Simply go to elk101.com, click the link to the online course, and use the code ELKSHAPE, all one word, when you check out. You owe it to yourself to invest in the single most lethal weapon that you take to the elk woods each fall. Invest in you. Sign up for the University of Elk Hunting online course and elevate your elk hunting success today.